Hello and welcome to this very special episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan, and our guest today, Brian O'Donovan. Well, if you've watched news in the last 10, 15 years from Ireland, you'll know exactly who Brian O'Donovan is and how his lively and authoritative reporting from the front lines of America and Ireland is absolute must-watch TV. He spent four years in the cauldron and that is the title of his new book, Four Years in the Cauldron, Telling the Extraordinary Story of America in Crisis. He, of course, was RTE's Washington correspondent for that time, seeing everything right from the front row seat, from the knife-edge election to the Capitol riot to the horrendous murder of George Floyd he was there for every step of it and this book is the first hand account of what it was like to attempt to cover this maybe the most rapidly evolving story that the world has ever seen but also it's this family account as Brian of course brought his wife and two children to Washington for the time and then of course became trapped there during COVID-19 and the height of the pandemic. It's a one-off, it's a book like no other I've picked up on the subject. I've always recommended the Michael Wolff books but this is more of an account of what it was like to be that person entrusted with that responsibility of getting that news across and back to Ireland while trying to remain impartial in what were really divisive times. It's available now from Penguin. You can get it everywhere. It was released on October 14th and might be the worst Christmas present if you can lay your hands on it. We've so many more podcasts available for you all through patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad where if you want to get three episodes a week of our podcast, one with Sonia Sullivan on wellness and running on a Tuesday and of course Marion McKeown, our America focused Irishman in America podcast is still coming out every single Friday with the incisive coverage of Marion McKeown where we look back on the week that was in America and try to look ahead at the 2024 election. There's, of course, another 40 minutes for you to enjoy with Brian covering his time at TV3, how he got his start in news and watching from that front row seat as the country's economy crashed in 2007. We also get into a little bit about vaccination take up in the States, Black Lives Matter being on the front line and trying to bite your tongue when it comes to Donald Trump and withhold your own personal opinions, set them to one side and why he believes the US media right now, more than ever, is missing Donald Trump. That's all available for the price of a pint over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Here is the first half of my interview with Brian O'Donovan. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme, what's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a f***ing job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Brian O'Donovan, it is brilliant to have you on the Irish Man Abroad. And 
so great at a time when you're putting out this book to kind of grab you as you look back on it all. When I would imagine that in your job, looking back is the opposite of what you need to do. You have to be so present in this thing that you were, were witnessing in America at this time that reflection might might really have been the enemy at times. It, then you'd miss what was in front of you. Yeah, you had to move on. It was a quick turnaround. And writing a book was a very different skill set to what I'm used to because when you write for television, when you write for radio, it's short and it's tight and it's snappy and it has to be that way. And as you said, yes, the story moved so fast, you didn't have time to reflect. So this was a wonderful experience for me, a very different skill set to look back on those stories that I told, but had to tell in a very different way and to be able to delve into them in more detail, expand on them, reflect on them, look back on my time there and look back on other times. And the book although it's called Four Years in the Cauldron and looks back on my four years in the US, it went back further. And actually, the book opens in a strange place. It opens in mm. Rome, where I am um, a reporter for TV3 back in 2013, covering the election of Pope Francis. And we're waiting for the smoke to rise out of the Sistine Chapel, waiting for the election of this new pope. And there was an unpredictability, an excitement. Nobody knew what was going to happen next. And I remember going to this huge press center in the Vatican, which was run by the press officers who were all priests and asking one of the priests rather innocently, when do we expect the cardinals to make up their mind? You know, I have a deadline, tick, tick, the clock is ticking. And he sort of laughed and he said, well, the cardinals will know whenever the Holy Spirit tells them. So it was this bizarre moment for me in journalism, whereby all control was gone. I was dependent on divine intervention. There was no rhyme, nor reason, nor predictability to this. And the pundits were talking about who the Pope might be and how long it might take. And of course, they were all wrong. Lots of people were predicting that it would be a very long papal conclave. It wasn't at all wrapped up very quickly in the end. And it reminded me, looking back, of my time in Washington. I'm not comparing Donald Pope Francis in any way, but that level of unpredictability and uncertainty. And I sort of say in the book that, you know, the, the, the smoke rising from the Sistine Chapel sent me flying to a TV live point, and that was sort of replaced with angry presidential tweets in the middle of the night that upended my day and sent me running towards a TV point or a radio microphone in order to report on the latest. So I wasn't waiting on the Holy Spirit, but it was just as unpredictable many times when it came to Donald Trump not knowing what was coming next. But it brought a huge level of excitement and enjoyment to the job. When we look back on the other RT correspondents like Mark Little and Robert Shore, Charlie Bird, Richard Downs, Katrina Perry, I always picture it as a single person's game, a very much a job, as you just described, where you're flying by the seat of your pants and you kind of don't need anything holding you back because you've got to be able to go at the drop of a hat. That's not your situation. Your family is there. And I kind of love that part of the book, the insight of trying to juggle and spin the plates of a family while this chaos unfolds. Yeah, and that was Penguin, my publishers, when they contacted me about the book, I said, of course, I would love to do this. Thank you for this opportunity. And I initially said, so it'll be a look at Donald Trump and it'll be a look at Joe Biden and it'll be politics and it'll be America and it'll be society. And they said, yes, it'll be all of that. But we also want it to be about you and we want it to be about your wife, Joanna, and about your kids, Lucy and Aaron, and how they experienced life in America and what they thought of it all. And I think particularly looking through my children's eyes, 
they were living and breathing the craziness, the madness, the busyness as well. And there's moments throughout the book where I speak about how, for example, our daughter Lucy, who's now 11, she would have been 10 last year, and the Black Lives Matter protest movements were kicking off. There'd been a particularly violent night in Washington. There'd been some looting, some vandalism on a street close to where we live. And Lucy sort of said to me and Joanna, you know, she was scared and she was upset. And she said, are they going to come to the houses? We said, no, 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 they won't come to the houses. You'll, you'll be safe. But then there was this sort of wonderful, I suppose, evolution or arc for her, where a few weeks later, while this protest movement was really ramping up and becoming this massive, massive thing, Lucy and her friend Blake went off one day with their placards and posters and said they were going to the local protest. And I didn't know a lot about it. There was a lot of protests on at the time. So I went up to check on them a little bit later and they were the only two people there. And I said, did nobody else turn up? And they said, no, this was our protest. So they had their own little mini Black Lives Matter protest on the street corner. Erin, my younger daughter, had been studying Ruth Bader Ginsburg in school, the Supreme Court justice. And when she passed, Erin was very upset by it all and it meant a lot to her. So it was fascinating for me to see these huge stories evolving. I was in the thick of them. I was covering them. But it was great to get the perspective of my kids who were witnessing them as well. And I hope for them, they're young now, but maybe in years to come, they'll be able to look back on these massive, historic, life-changing events in America and say, yeah, I was there for that, and hopefully look back with fondness, and it'll have an impact on them going forward. You know, it must be hard, though. I mean, that's the, that's the neat sum up, right? They're right there. What you've given me is it nearly rounds off like a report on your family from that period. But you are being asked in this book, I'm sure Penguin pushed you to do the thing that you've trained for years not to do, which is to make it about you and bring it back to you and the impact it has within you and on your relationship. How hard is that, Brian? Because you obviously do have a default setting of uh, you're an upbeat guy and professionalism is, you know, synonymous with how you do your thing and how you deliver it. It's so the clarity is everything with you, but it never is about you. And yet this is the challenge with this. Yeah, it was the challenge, but also an opportunity. So you imagine all these things happen and on air you present it as a, a finished report talking about what, what is kicking off. But of course, in the background, and there's a story in the book about how we were actually on holidays in South Carolina mm. when the Black Lives Matter protest moment really started to ramp up and it became very clear that I would have to return to Washington. But it was ex very, very hot. We were in this holiday apartment. So I did this live report sort of suit in the top half, shorts and sandals down the bottom half because it was never going to be viewed. And there were these people in the resort and my wife could overhear them at the pool saying, oh my God, there's this guy doing a report on the balcony. I wonder if something happened. So all of these things happened. And of course, on one level, you tell your friends and you tell your family, so I was doing this report and this thing happened and this, was, this is what was going on in the background. But you're never going to say it on air. But it was wonderful to be able to put it down in print because that was part of the story, mm. not the RTE News story, not the story that was going to go out on the 6-1 or on Morning Ireland on the radio, but it was part of the story of what happened. And again, Penguin, their focus was, let's go behind the scenes. What was it like? And it, it went beyond. I mean, that, that's, I suppose that's a superficial example of here what was literally going on behind the scenes. You know, we were on holidays and I, had to, I remember my, my, my first thought was, well, I can't point the camera at the beach because the viewers at home will be like, what's going on there? You know, we'll turn the camera around. But there was constant examples of it where the nature of breaking news, myself and my cameraman, Murray, were 
in a Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn where there'd been an outbreak of the measles. This was pre-COVID, and it was the day that Joe Biden announced his run for president. So we had to sort of abandon our measles story and do our Joe Biden live report. But behind me, because it was this Orthodox Jewish community, they were very traditionally dressed with large furry hats. So you had this very strange... Uh, dressed people behind me. So I wonder what the viewers at home thinking, my goodness, where is he? And it was similar. We were doing a report one day in Pennsylvania about something completely different and a Donald Trump story broke. And we were in Amish country. And just before we went live, an Amish man rode by in a horse and trap. He passed through the shot. We went live. We did our thing. And I kind of thought, you know, wouldn't it have been strange if this man had rolled behind me while I was doing <laughs> reports about Donald Trump's taxes in the Supreme Court? So it was just so this is what happened. This was the reality of the last four years. So the book is a lovely opportunity just to go into the behind the scenes and to give people a flavor of some of the things that were happening that they would never have known just from watching television or, yeah. or listening to the radio. And that's a huge, huge selling point of it, especially for anybody who is you know, fascinated by the news. No, a lot of us are completely worn out by it as well. I mean, news fatigue is impossible not to experience some of it, especially just even just through scrolling. If you're not into broadcast news, I am obsessed with broadcast news and all of that kind of behind the scenes stuff is, you know, to me, why I love sports documentaries in the same way as you only get to see the show. I've always been obsessed with behind the curtain, you know, your your predecessor, Katrina Perry, was kind of told and we were all went along with the idea that she was there when the earth shifted on its axis and things changed forever. And God, there'll never be another RT correspondent over there to see such change. I mean, then there's you. I mean, you have witnessed colossal change, like the plates shifting and America nearly cannibalizing itself. Every week, Marion McKeown and I discuss what's taking place. And she has said that it does seem like America nearly attacked itself while you're in the broadcast end of it. Marion is not. It must be hard to gauge what is this that's taking place? this wider context of who America is becoming, what what will remain at the end of all of this, when, as you say, you're flying by the seat of your pants with Bermuda shorts on and a, you know, a top half suit. Do you get what I'm saying? Does, does that make any sense? No, absolutely. And you, you witness it and you see it and it is divisive. And I was reminded, I don't know if you saw George W. Bush's speech last month marking the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And he spoke about how he was there on that day. He was the president at the time and how united America became in the face of this terrible, terrible, awful thing to hit America. One of the worst things that ever has happened in the history of America, 9-11. And the country united and came together. And he said, I don't see that now. Where is that unity? This is not the country that I know. And I thought it was a stark moment to hear from somebody of this time of crisis and awfulness that happened in America 20 years ago. And he's saying that's not there right now. That unity isn't there. And it's true. And you see it, you know, everything seems to be a fight now. Everything's divided. Everything became divided last year during the election. And Donald Trump would use the big issues of the day for 
political gain. Mm. It was with the coronavirus. Remember, he attacked the states and the governors that had democratic governors, that had democratic control. And he would say, oh, these states are going down the wrong route and they're doing too many lockdowns. Masks became divisive, whether or not you wore a mask. The lockdowns became divisive. Everything was about this sort of us versus them world of his own creation. And when the Black Lives Matter protest movement kicked off, he would very much focus on the looting and the vandalism. And when the looting starts, the shooting starts, he infamously tweeted one time. And that became about the Democrats. He said, oh, this looting and this vandalism, it's only happening in those Democrat-controlled cities. They're radical, they're leftist, they're socialist. And if you elect Joe Biden, you're going to get more of it. So when you have an election year like that, hammering home these divisions, talking about all of the things that make Americans different and us versus them, I think it's no wonder that you're going to see those divisions. And then, of course, post-election, we had one of the biggest divisions of all that rumbles on to this day that I find very worrying, this constant insistence by Donald Trump that the election was stolen from him, which is not true, that there was election fraud, which is not true, but millions and millions of people believe it, and the Republican Party are not willing to call him out, and they're going along with it too because they're afraid of him and they're afraid of the control that he still wields over this huge, huge support base within the party. Do you find it hard, though, Brian, that... And we, you know, we, I do want to go back to, you know, your beginnings in all of this and, you know, winding up in this place at the, you know, the, the number one news story in the world, having begun, you know, in local news and going to DCU. But you ever find it hard, though, with the broadcast side of things that, you don't you don't near you nearly just don't have the time or the remit to go any further that like there's obviously more at play and you know you can dig into it to a point but really Archie wants you to get to it quick yeah i mean what i will always say about the broadcast medium it does carry enormous weight and i know i cannot spend days talking to a community in a rust belt in pennsylvania or in some southern state about why they voted for donald trump but i can go to a donald trump rally or i can visit a town and i can stand on a main street and i can speak to people and i think the power of broadcast is the power of the voice the face on camera or the voice on radio telling you their reasons. And what I always found fascinating was speaking to people about their reasons for supporting Donald Trump, because that, for a European audience, for an Irish audience, was head-scratching. You mentioned Katrina Perry there. She was there as he was elected, and that was the head-scratching moment, going, how did this happen? What's, what's the backstory to this? How did we not see this coming? What I found fascinating then was covering his presidency, for three years was that level of support was very much maintained and he was loved by people. And when you visited those Rust Belt towns in Pennsylvania or the Donald Trump rally down in North Carolina, it was fascinating to speak to people. And at the rally, of course, you had the diehards. They were the supporters. They loved him. And they would speak about how he was this wonderful businessman who had made so much money and who would save the country and treat the business in the same way. But what was also interesting was just to speak to ordinary people on the street who supported him for a variety of reasons. The, his abortion stance, uh, his conservative views, his tax cutting for businesses and wealthier people. He ticked a lot of boxes for a lot of people. So while I agree with you, yes, that I can't delve deep and do a deep dive psychological analysis of what was happening in America, you do learn a lot just from stopping people mm. on the street and talking to them and saying, why is the country the way it is? Why do you think things are the way they are? 
what do you think of the guy that's in the White House right now? What do you think of the guy that's coming into the White House? And you do get an insight into people's faults. And I suppose the other element is, aside from the physically going out with your microphone and your camera, when you live in the area, you just get to know people, our neighbors. We've made the most wonderful friends and our kids, friends, parents, and all these people that I work with, that I meet every day. And to get their sense of what was going on. I mean, my first camera woman, Patty, wonderful woman, but she only worked with me for six months at the start. And in the end, she, I think the news got the better of her. She was American and she found it difficult to cover Donald Trump all the time, all the divisions, all the rows, all the controversies. And she decided to leave news altogether. She actually moved to Hawaii to become a tour guide and a photographer a million miles away <laughs> from Donald Trump. And angry <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, it struck me, and, and my current cameraman, Murray, a wonderful guy, American as well. And what strikes me is when I was watching it and reporting on it, I wasn't living it in the sense that I I am not American and I will not be here forever. I've only got a few weeks left and I'll be coming home. And I knew that this was this massive roller coaster ride, this wonderful professional opportunity, but it wasn't my country. But what was interesting was to speak to these people. And my, my cameraman Murray would say something, man, I don't know what's happening to my country. What's going on right now? And that always struck me that while I was reporting it and witnessing it, they were living it. It's their country. And I think that has been a struggle for a lot of Americans. And it's been a difficult few years for them. Yeah. And I know... What Marion often says is that for Trump is like pornography for so many Americans that they'll never admit to it, but someone's watching it. I mean, lots of them are watching it and lots of them supported Donald Trump, but wouldn't say it on camera to you. You were meeting those that would to a large extent, those that were out and proud. And those were the people that he he fully believed and probably rightly so that he could shoot someone in the street and they'd still vote for him. Now, we're going to delve a lot deeper into all of this later on in the conversation, but I do want to go back to the beginnings for you, Brian, and I guess your earliest memory of news and whether it was like the Paul Howard story of writing out your own match reports in your copybooks were you a guy doing news reports to the mirror with the hairbrush or did that come much later? I have no use for the hairbrush now, I can tell you. <laughs> but back then, yes. Uh, no, I mean, actually, you're reminding me now. It's funny. Yeah, I, I remember we used to have the old tape recorder and you'd be recording little radio plays and messing around. And we grew up in a house where my dad was involved in like the local drama society. He used to build the sets and direct little plays for the youth group. And of course, all of us, me and my siblings were involved in that. So I suppose we'd sort of, I don't want to make it sound overly dramatic, pardon the pun, but a sort of a theatre upbringing, I suppose, of the local parish hall where we'd be involved in various plays and performances. And I loved all that. I loved the performance side of it. And I always, as a kid, wanted to work in TV and radio. And as I say, I'd be recording my little pieces on my microphone. And then the first opportunity came. Well, I suppose it all began really with um, choosing my college course, which was communications in DCU, which was a very much focused on TV and radio production. And then the first job I got in the meet, in the industry was uh, Red FM, local radio station in Cork, launched while I was still in college. And they were looking for weekend newsreaders and weekend DJs. 
and I applied for both. And I never got a call back for the DJ job, but I did get a call back for the newsreader job. The head of news there, Lana O'Connor, took a chance on me, gave me a job as a weekend newsreader, and then I continued working and there for years. Was, and that, was news always the dream? Because as you say, the theatre thing makes me think that you know, you obviously liked performing and, you know, being front and centre. You have to, to do your job. Was it always news, though? The love of news very much kicked in once I started working in that. I was a young guy still in college, late teens, early 20s. And the role was your Saturday morning news reader what was happening at the time. And I absolutely fell in love with it because I loved the immediacy of it the quick change, the breaking element, getting out, covering the story, and then getting up the next day and doing it all over again. And you never knew what was going to happen. So I guess, particularly with television then, that live element performance, you sort of bring in, yes, the ability to be able to perform, for want of a better word, but you are, of course, delivering factual information Mm -hmm. that's happening. And what we had, of course, over the last four years here in the US was, people say to me, it must have been incredibly hard work and, and sort of difficult covering Donald Trump. And it, it was hard work, but in many ways it wasn't difficult because the story was there <laughs> yeah. and it was there for the taking. And it was a story that everybody was fascinated in, whether they loved him or they hated him. It was drama. It was exciting. It was different and it was unpredictable. And I absolutely loved every minute of it. And it just gave the material was there. You just had to do with it what you would, you know, and then it kept evolving. And what you had, of course, over the last few years was a scenario whereby whatever the story was, it ended up becoming Donald Trump's take on it, whether it was Black Lives Matter, whether it was COVID, whether it was the economy, whether it was climate, it always became what Donald Trump said about it or what he dealt with it. And that was unusual. You don't usually have that with a president, that he shapes the focus so much. Red FM is obviously quite the opposite in that I'd imagine that sometimes down at Red FM, there were there were slow news days. Do you remember covering stories where you're like, really, are we are we are we covering this? Well, what I loved about Red FM was the localness of it, and you would cover the local protest that was anti the incinerator or anti this development that was being built, or the local court case. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. And there was <laughs> the court cases. Court. I mean, come the, on. The, oh, yeah, you would go down to the court. You'd be there for the day. Actually, well, one of the big cases I got to cover at the time and who's in the news all mm-hmm. the time right now is um, Ian Bailey. He had taken um, defamation cases against some of the newspapers yes. over their coverage of the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. Now, that was something I got to cover. And that was fascinating. Now, that's not a good example of a small court case. That was a big court case. But it was very exciting to cover that. And you had the TV cameras there and all the media descended on the Cork courts for that particular one. But I loved it. I loved the day-to-day workings of it all, the busyness, you know. And as I say, what was nice about news was that you had a crazy busy day, but then you left it behind and you went home and you started all over again the next day afresh. And I've always enjoyed that element. And I don't think you can hang on to a story. Obviously, there are stories that carry on and you will cover it the next day and the next day. But there is an element that I always enjoyed of being able to move on to the next thing and cover it all over again and start afresh. I mean, you've said love a few times there. Like, I think that there are loads of people who don't love their jobs. They they do a job and they love their free time. Do you have to be addicted to this or have a, a relationship with it that borders on obsession or, as you said, 
love, like actual <laughs> adoration for the project in order to survive at it? For me, it happened naturally. And I can compare it to the jobs I had as a teenager, which was working in fast food restaurants, working in shops. And I would wake up to start a shift and you'd have that feeling of, uh, and from the <laughs> moment I started working in radio, which was now, goodness, what, 20 years ago, 20 odd years ago, I never had that feeling coming to work for a day never. in the broadcast industry. And I am incredibly lucky. And I know that. And I have friends who like their jobs and have very good jobs, but they don't love their jobs. I always have, and I've always been lucky. And I can compare it to those teenage jobs of where I did feel that sense of, oh, here we go. You know, I'm just doing this for the paycheck. I really don't want to be here, but I have not had that sense in 20 years. So I know I am incredibly lucky and privileged to be in, in, to be in that position. And I don't take it for granted and I relish it. Well, I'm interested that you, you're able to close the door on it because, you know, in my own other half of my job in comedy, I find it's so hard to close the door at all that it's just it's just always ticking over in the background and there's no escaping from it at times. And people find this hard to believe because they're like, you're writing jokes, Jar. <laughs> you're not. You're not solving the country's problems. But switching off doesn't seem to be a problem for you. But sure, surely when it's the news, you could be working all the time, even back in the Red FM days, especially when ambition is starting to kick in. If you love it as much as you say, you you obviously had to think, I, I've got to get somewhere, somewhere else. I want to go as high as I can go, right? Yeah, no, you're right. The news medium is you're always switched on, particularly now with social media. So I guess back in my Red FM days 20 years ago, Twitter wasn't a big thing and you weren't constantly looking at a president's Twitter feed that certainly changed during my time here in the u.s you are on duty you are on call you are always looking you're always keeping an eye on what's going on out there and it does keep you incredibly busy but i have been able to switch off and i guess covering the trump presidency for three years was quite different to both any other job I did before, and also probably very different to what the previous Washington correspondents did. Certainly, Katrina Perry would have had a, a, a year of Donald Trump and, and, and the lead up to him, so she could attest to this. But the rest of the time, it is unusual to be covering a president all the time and all the things the president says. And what I have had was three years of Trump, one year of Biden. The Biden year has been very different. As everybody knows, he's much quieter. So what that has allowed me to do is move on and look at other stories and do the migrant crisis on the border and look at climate change and go out and do the wildfires in California. And then that is instance, yeah, you do switch out. You, 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 you throw your heart and soul into it and you spend. We had this most wonderful experience where we sat on the banks of the Rio Grande at midnight as a boat full of migrants came across, women carrying small children, and there was this preacher there to meet them, and he prayed with them. And it was the most amazing experience. So we got this wonderful footage and did a really nice TV and radio report. But then I moved on to the next story the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And that's the way I've always liked it. You are on call. You're always monitoring. You're always watching. But when it comes to a project, to me, it's a standalone project. When it is completed, I move on to the next thing. And coming back to the book, what gave me the enjoyment there was to be able to delve that little bit deeper, spend a bit more time on the thing, because the nature, as I said at the start of TV and radio is quick, 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 move on to the next thing, move on to the next thing. A book allows you to delve a little bit deeper into the issues. 
So there you have it, the first half of my conversation with Brian O'Donovan. The book, as I said, is Four Years in the Cauldron. If you'd like to hear the second half of the interview, including that stuff about his time at the plucky upstart of Irish news at TV3, much, much more besides that. His opinions on setting your personal bias to one side and reporting is magical stuff. And equally, his take on exactly how much the US media needs Donald Trump is something else and how effectively he's being ignored despite still pumping out statement after statement and press relief release within the absence of Twitter. There's so much more in this interview over on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad where you can get access to our full archive of eight years of interviews. Hard to believe eight years of Irishman Abroad and of course two extra interviews each week with Sonia O'Sullivan and Marion McKeown. That's all there. As I say, it's how we run this podcast, how we support this show and keep it going. Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Big shout out to everybody who went out and did the great pink run this weekend with myself and Sonia, a of uh, breast cancer research in Ireland. Uh, we'll be talking more about that. And it's Ask Sonia Anything Week on Irishman Running Abroad. So if you've got a question for the GOAT, email irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com and I'll put that question to her on Tuesday's show Brian Connolly's on sound John Mardo's the extra research Tina and Mikey make it all possible but you make it possible by going to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and signing up this week